Uh, great to be back uh, live again now. Uh, thanks, Elodie, for uh, bringing us the Bible reading today. Hey, before we crack on into this passage, we might pray and, and then get into it. Loving God, we want to uh, come before you now. We thank you uh, for the opportunity to be able to gather as your people. Our little phrase is uh, one church in many homes. While we can't gather here, uh, we can still get together in our lounge rooms, in our bedrooms, whatever it is, and be able to come and, and worship and sing and pray and hear from your word. Lord, we know that you're a God who is in a personal relationship with us, and we know we can pray to you, and so we lift our voices and our hearts at the moment uh, for our world and for the situation of this pandemic. Uh, we pray for those who are seeking uh, cures and vaccines, that you would grant them wisdom and insight. We thank you that you have made us with the capacity to, to, to research, to do science, uh, to be able to find cures for illnesses. And we pray for those who are... Uh, have, who have been um, infected, I guess, by this, this virus uh, for health, for, for healing. Again, we're so grateful for the, the medical uh, world that we have around this. But we also pray, Lord, uh, for your healing hand in people's lives, um, that you would bring healing into them, that there wouldn't be as much um, casualty around this story. Lord, now as our hearts turn towards uh, your word, this gospel of Luke, we pray that as we dig into it, that your spirit would illuminate truth to us, would confront us where we need to be confronted, would, would warm our hearts where they need to be warmed. And we thank you uh, that we get to do this this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, get to work, dive into this passage uh, from Luke. But before we do that, or as we begin to do that, I want to have a little chat about uh, nicknames. Um, nicknames kind of come into being. We get nicknames generally because of some quality, some attribute, some some feature that we may have. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, you get a nickname because of a habit or a behavior. Uh, football clubs are great for nicknames. We played with a bloke, a guy who I used to play footy with, his nickname was Turtle. Uh, he got that name because that's how he would end up after a night of drinking, just on his back and unable to move and, and not able to help himself. Now, we had another guy who was called Mumbles because you just literally couldn't understand a word he ever said. Um, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why we get nicknames. Sometimes you get it because of a feature that you have. Sometimes if you have red hair, you, you get called bluey. Uh, if you're lucky, if you're fortunate, I think that's what they call redheads these days. Australians tend to be pretty inclusive, uh, you know, with the way we hand out nicknames. If you're fairly boring, there's no kind of real features about you that anyone can pick out. Um, we, we don't want you to miss out, so we just chuck an O on the end of your name. So you, you've got a nickname like Jono or Davo or Meso or whatever uh, the case may be. Sometimes nicknames just have no meaning at all, really. We had a guy who worked with us uh, on our bricklaying team. We used to call him Spadge. Now, um, there is a reason why I got it, but it, it had no meaning or anything. It actually grabbed meaning as it went along. It was one of those names that, that, that applied or gathered its own meaning. Uh, and then there's nicknames that we give to people who stand out, who, who really uh, excel and are exceptional at what they do. A nickname tries to encapsulate, uh, uh, set in stone the greatness of that person. John Farnham, for instance, gets the nickname The Voice. Uh, Wayne Carey was called The King. Lee Matthews was called Lethal. Um, Gary Ablett, simply God. And his son, Gary Ablett Jr., gets called The, the Little Master. Often on occasions, uh, we, we, 
we start to acronym things. Uh, we give the acronym the GOAT, uh, G-O-A-T, to a person who rises to this, un, to an unchallenged, unrivaled dominance uh, in their, in their, in what they do in their chosen field. Shane Warne, for instance, is the is the goat of cricket. LeBron James is is the goat of basketball. Michael uh, Jordan fans won't like that, but yeah. Uh, Chris Judd, when he was at Carlton, yeah, like it's easy to win uh, a Brownlow medal in that in that West Coast Eagles midfield, but to win a Brownlow medal in that Carlton midfield, that takes some jets. You know, he's the goat. You know, John, the son of Elizabeth. The son of Zechariah, who, who's been the counterpart to this story of Jesus that we've been looking at. He, he had a pretty uh, unique upbringing, a, a fairly unique kind of vocation and job that he did. And it led to him getting the nickname the Baptist. And I think uh, that came about because of his upbringing and all that was around him and the way he, he administered his ministry. I think it's safe to assume that John's parents died uh, when he was young, given the age that they were at his birth. So our boy John is an orphan as he grows up. And I, and I think that shaped him in a bit of his kind of junkyard dog sort of resilience and assertiveness of, of how he conducted himself uh, we know that John was destined to have this prophetic ministry uh, that we read about here that, and that it would be empowered by the Spirit. Like that's all the language that surrounds John at his birth and that. And John's life then was lived in obedience to that Spirit. He had a life that benefited from uh, an elite spiritual discipline uh, that fell in line with, with Nazarite kind of spiritual disciplines. And all of these internal forces and all of these external forces worked in the conscious of John uh, over the decades to make and to mold him into the kind of person that he was. Luke tells us back in chapter 1, uh, before switching his focus to Jesus, that John grew up and became strong in the spirit, which is a reference to his, to his human spirit, his character. He became mighty in his convictions and his passions about his prophetic ministry and his prophetic purpose and that he lived out in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance and Kent Hughes says about John that alone out in the wilderness with God his great prophetic personality was established and that it was second to none and Jesus himself would say that John was greater than any of the luminaries of the Jewish Hall of Fame. In fact, Jesus said that John was greater than any mortal human being to ever live. Like no one raised above John the Baptist in stature. It was a combination, uh, it was his combined experience, if you like, of all that he grew up with that forged this uncompromising, uh, fierce, passionate preaching that eventually led to John getting the nickname John the Baptist. You see, so, so convicting, um, heart-challenging was his message that people just flocked to, to hear him. They came from all over Palestine to be told they needed to repent. They came from all over Palestine to be told they needed to change their approach of their hearts towards God in order to be ready, in order to be prepared uh, to, for God's invitation of salvation and to avoid... Uh, on the flip side, to avoid God's wrath. It wasn't exactly what you'd call a seeker-sensitive message. Now, you have to have a fair bit of game about you as a preacher if your main message is, unless you change 
fundamentally who you are, you are all going to hell. Preach that message and still have thousands of people clamor to hear you and still have possibly thousands of people uh, agree with you. And the sign that they agreed with that message, that they agreed with your whole vocation, was they went and they got baptized to demonstrate their willingness to change their whole approach, their whole expectations toward God about how he would save and what was required of a human heart to encounter salvation. Matthew tells us that all of Judea, the region about the Jordan, were going out and getting baptized by John, confessing their sins and getting baptized. You know, Luke summarizes John's message as good news. In verse 18 there, so obviously John communicated that realizing your need of salvation uh, is precisely good news. Uh, What you need to prepare you uh, to hear God's salvation essentially good news you are far more evil than you ever dare admit is how john starts like there is stuff within ourselves that we want to hide from people that we, we we really know about ourselves that we don't want anyone else knowing about but good news God sees what you want to hide, and he is coming to deal with it, but in a way where you don't get what you deserve for those actions, but rather you are given what you don't deserve. So good news, here's the second half. You are far more loved than you ever dare dream. John's message was about the possibility of heart change that moved you from judgment to approval, that saw you experience salvation, and and people responded to that with baptism. And so he copped this nickname. He was so successful in what he did that he became known as John the Baptist. Well, that's what Jesus calls him in Matthew 10, 11. You know, Jesus is fond of nicknames. He, he gives them out here and there. But I think he uses this one because it's well known, or at least that's how Jesus uses it. You know, that dude down there, John the Baptist, that guy, that's who I'm talking about. Now, back in first century Palestine, they didn't have ESPN or Fox Sport, uh, you know, run and talk back shows about who was the goat, who was the greatest of all Jewish prophets. But what they did have was this growing uh, wave of affirmation that John uh, the Baptist was so elite, so so unique at his prophetic ministry that some people began to ask, "Is is this guy the Messiah?" Is this guy the Christ? Is John the Baptist the greatest of all time? Is, is he the long-awaited hope of Israel? The guy who's going who's to bring us out of darkness and oppression, who's going to get rid of the Romans, who's going to change all this oppression and abuse. People began flocking to John and asking him to be their savior. Is he their savior? Luke tells us in verse 19 that our boy John, um, he, he, can't, he, he called out systemic evil of, of the time of tetrarchs like Herod Antipas who abused their power. In the case of Herod, he traded the wife he had for the wife of his brother, you know, destroying two marriages you know, without any care and, and establishing one that was against and contrary to God's law. People basically saw John the Baptist as as the goat, the greatest of all prophets, someone who could drive the kind of environmental reform that they would hope the Messiah would bring. 
John, John is just basically the most popular. Uh, he's also the most controversial, the most influential person of his time. Because despite his, um, his no-compromise message, he had hit a chord that resonates with everyone. The things are not how they should be. They need to change. That we are not as we should be. That we need to change. And people came and they flocked to that message as hard as it was to hear. But John's role was to point people to the fact that the kind of change we need cannot come from uh, within. It has to come from without. The kind of Messiah we need is not another prophet. The kind of um, Messiah we need, the kind of great saving figure we need is not another king, not another politician, not merely another uh, social activist. The kind of Messiah we need is so vastly beyond the best of what we can rise to that John says that the Messiah that we need, I am not even worthy to untie his sandals. And John points us to a saviour who qualifies to bring change to the environment of our hearts, who will change our standing before God. And as he does, as this Messiah changes our heart, changes our standing before God, he will change the world. He will change the world through the new community that arises, that we now call the church um, through this. John points us to the fact that Jesus is the one who qualifies at this level because he's a far worthier man than the best of us. John does this through his sandals analogy. In those days, teachers, rabbis, you know, even prophets had students, disciples who, who kind of followed them, who wanted to be like them, who wanted to learn their teachings. Uh, these disciples, they didn't pay a tuition fee, but they showed their devotion, they showed their gratitude by doing just menial tasks for, for, for their teacher uh, menial tasks of service you know go and wash the car or go and grab his smoko mow his lawns you know walk his dog whatever he didn't feel like doing they they went and did the more esteemed a teacher you were the less you had to do and the more uh, people did for you but there was one thing that no teacher no 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 rabbi could ask a student to do it was considered far too demeaning. It was a job given to the lowest of slaves, and that was to untie their sandals. That's what makes Jesus' action uh, in the upper room when he undoes the disciples' sandals and washes their feet so extraordinary. According to an ancient document, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except loosening of his sandal thong. John uses the unworthiness of this task as something he would be lucky to do. To point to the immeasurable, uh, immense worthiness of the one to come. Like he'd be lucky. He's not even worthy enough to untie the sandals of Jesus. Basically, John says in Jesus, we have someone who is worthy of worship and praise, not just our menial acts of service. And John goes on to say that not only is Jesus, Jesus a far superior person uh, to him, but Jesus' baptism is a far superior baptism. You know, John the Baptist from which he got his nickname, this baptism was the hallmark of his ministry. It was the measure of his success, turning people from their sins uh, and seeking change. 
John's baptism, though, was a baptism of water in the Jordan River, and it was symbolic of one's desire uh, to change. And water served to publicly demonstrate that desire to, 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 to get that inward reality. You know, John could call people to repentance, and he could wash them in water, but he could not change them from the inside out. Only someone as mighty as God could do that to a person. David Gooding explains the difference. John could, repent, could put repentant people in a water. In a sense, anybody could do that. But only one who is God could put people in the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit uh, in them, which is what John says Jesus will do. Jesus will baptize people with the Holy Spirit and fire. To have your very soul regenerated with a new quality of life is what's being pictured here. John's inclusion of the fire is just another way of referencing the Spirit's work in your heart, but it adds the emphasis to the, to the refining, purifying nature of the work of the Spirit in the heart of a person. The Spirit comes along and what the Spirit does is it regenerates new life, brings a quality of life that never existed before. The Spirit also adopts us, changes us our status before God from an exile to a child. The Spirit sanctifies us. That means the Spirit's the one that motivates us, uh, our soul, to pursue holiness. The Spirit also comes and seals us for eternity, uh, preserving our faith. I mean, we cannot lose our faith. We cannot be lost from the grip of God. The Spirit fills us. Uh, it equips us to live as God designed. All of this is attached to the baptism of the Spirit that Jesus unleashes on the human heart. That is why he is far more superior than John. That's why you need to go to Jesus rather than John. John also pictures Jesus as far more superior in authority, that he is the kind of authority ascribed to God. John might be able to call people to repentance for their sins, but only Jesus in his divine capacity can actually hold them to account for their sins, for their lives. This Messiah not only offers a salvation like no one's seen before, you know, a new heart, but he also has the authority to judge that human heart for its conduct. He, he, he's going to gather humanity like a father, a farmer gathers a harvest of wheat. And he's going to sift through their hearts, a heart that has not repented, a heart that has not experienced the Spirit's purifying fire of deep heart change, will actually then face the fire of judgment, a, a, a judgment that is complete, a judgment that is unavoidable. This is the authority of the one to come. And how you respond to him, not me, says John, that is what establishes whether you experience salvation or whether you experience judgment. Well, it's an awe-inspiring figure of perfect humanity and divine authority that John points towards, which is what makes what Luke says next so extraordinary. It's kind of almost incidental. Luke says there in verse 21, Now, when all the people were baptized, and when, and when Jesus had also been baptized, and, and, and he was off praying, the heavens opened. The way Luke writes, the emphasis is actually on the revelation from heaven that is about to take place. And just sees this baptism as, as par for course. 
The testimony around Jesus so far is, is of one whose origins are divine. Uh, he has, and then he's gone and he's added uh, humanity to that divinity, a humanity that is far superior in character, that is perfect, a humanity that is perfect in his love and obedience to God. And John has now just added to that the, the same authority, like Jesus has the same authority as God. The testimony of Scripture is that Jesus is without sin at all, perfect from the womb to the tomb. There's simply nothing he needs, nor will he need to be forgiven of. So why does Jesus come and get baptized? It's a question, uh, it's a good question. It's a question recorded in Matthew's gospel that John actually asks as Jesus approaches him for baptism. You are the one who should be baptizing me, John says, not, not the other way around. But Jesus says back to John, well, actually, I need to be baptized by you to fulfill all righteousness. Now, there's a lot in this phrase, and, and we don't understand all of this phrase, but here is how it applies to this moment. That in order to bring salvation to jacked up, messed up sinners who are just all over the map and how they live outside of God's design, Jesus has chosen to identify with their need for forgiveness. God is saying, I see you. I see how banged up you are. And I choose to be the one who will take your fire of judgment so my spirit can come and heal you. This is Jesus saying, I stand with you. I stand for you. The question is, where do you stand in relationship to me? And here Jesus' baptism serves to declare the kind of salvation he is bringing, one that is for the sins of the world. And the words of Isaiah fall across Jesus at the outset of his ministry. They're written 800 years earlier that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus' baptism is the moment he showed his hand, the moment he went public with God's plan of salvation in identifying with the need Jesus volunteers to be the solution. Jesus is saying, I am willing to be uh, reckoned as a sinner. I am willing to be treated as a sinner, even though no no sin actually ever exists in me. Jesus essentially says, I will face the fire of judgment so that you can have the spirit of life, of renewed hearts, new hearts that will bring justice, new hearts that will love um, mercy uh, over power, justice over abuse, that will speak peace and not greed. This is Jesus saying, I am on my way to the cross to do what water, to do what ritual, to do what no prophet can do, and that is to face the wrath of God so that you can know uh, the experience of the love of God. And I am qualified to do so. I am the true goat, if you you like, to want to use that analogy. And as Jesus makes this public declaration, as he comes out, his heart turns to prayer, and we, we don't know what he's praying for at that moment, but... God answers that prayer and turns up. The other members of the, of the triune Godhead arrive and they are here to make their public declarations, to give divine endorsement and testimony to uh, who Jesus is and what he's come to do. The phrase, the heavens were opened, is, is literal. It's describing what happened, as in the clouds parted, the skies acted in obedience to God, like they got out of the way. 
It's also a phrase that's used when, when, when the God of heaven reveals himself to people on earth. So when God makes revelation about himself, it's like the heavens opened and we could see something of God. You know, you could say every time you open your Bibles, it's like the heavens opening and, and we get to hear and see something about God. The, this event uh, happened publicly. It was a public event. It didn't just happen in the conscious of Jesus. The heavens opened, dove descend physically, God speaks. And the Holy Spirit comes and it rests on Jesus. Not because Jesus was without the Spirit, but, but this is the Spirit now saying, to come and publicly enjoy, endorse Jesus and their joint venture together. Like Jesus will do nothing without the Spirit's power. And God the Father speaks and he adds his testimony over the top of all that has been piled up so far about who Jesus is. Basically to come and say, and I, I am delighted to say that, that this is the one... Uh, on whom my plans of salvation are centered. I am here to tell you that Jesus, who I have known and loved eternally, is uniquely qualified to bring salvation. And I love him and I approve him. And this love and this approval, this approval of God and all that he did would ultimately uh, be demonstrated when, when God raises Jesus from death to show, yes, he approves of all that Jesus has done. But the words that God spoke here are a combination of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. Jesus is a mysterious mixture of ultimate power and authority that is now restrained and to be exercised as a suffering servant who will ultimately give his life for his subjects. The one who John is not worthy to be a servant to, a slave to, is not worthy to even untie his sandals, is now pictured as restraining that authority, that majesty, that superiority to be a servant to all humanity and to our deepest need. To do for us what we simply can't do for ourselves, to wash away our sin, to move us from judgment to approval, and to give us the Spirit of God that warms our hearts with affection for the Father. Jesus came to bring us into the love of the Father, the same kind of love and approval that, that, that he has had throughout all eternity is what Jesus is now offering to us. When you get to the point where you realize that things are not how they should be, they need to change. When you get to the point that you realize that you are not how you need to be, you need to change. You are the very person that Jesus has come into this world for. You are the very person that Jesus says, I stand with you. I stand for you. Jesus has come to identify with our need. We need to identify with Jesus' provision. Trust in Jesus as the one who deals with sin is what qualifies us to experience the love of the Father. You know, this is unbelievable hope for those who wonder, can I really be loved? Loved unconditionally, even though he sees all that I want to hide. Can, can I really find approval? even though I know I've done stuff that most makes me want to drown in shame? The answer that we find here is yes. 
Matthew writes, he quotes that Isaiah passage that, that God speaks from. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, Gentiles, sinners, people outside of God will find their hope. That's what we're seeing unleashed here this morning. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for this incredible picture of humility in Jesus, uh, eternal Son of God who would stoop down and come and pick up broken people and say, find, find shelter in me. See your need for your forgiveness of sin. I, I see it, but it, it's, it's not too ugly for me to run away. But rather, I want to come and I want to heal and that you would find life in me. And we pray that this would be our experience every day. That even if we fail from time to time, that we would just see Jesus picking us back up and saying, Hey, I got you. And that if it was something that we don't know, that it would be something that we would run toward. That we would trust God that in Jesus he has done all we need to find a new life where there is peace and joy and, and just happiness. And we thank you for this this morning. Uh, we lift these prayers up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.